even though we got the warning that you always should actually try to get the upfront payment in those kind of places. Mm. But when you have spent one week with them, you have really managed to have a relationship. So I trusted we actually kind of left big amount of devices there and a lot of other stuff, uh, kind of accessories, etc. And they promised to do the payment the next day. And I haven't got the payment still today. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. And I bet you're exposed to investment risk right now. To reduce it, go to myworstinvestmentever.com and download the risk reduction checklist I've made specifically for you based on the lessons learned from all my guests. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts, and I'm here with featured guests, Marco Nala. Narco, are you ready to rock? Yes, I am. Yeah. And thank you for the invitation. Great <laughs> to be your guest in the show. I'm very happy to have you with us. And I'm going to introduce you to the audience. So Marco is founder and CEO of Kipuwork. And it is a device, a medical device, that provides an innovative solution to tackle global health problems. It's recognized among top medical innovations in the world. Now, Marco is a well-known innovator from Finland thanks to his invention of three game-changing IoT products. This most valuable product right now is an easy-to-use, lightweight IoT device which wirelessly and continuously measures a person's biomarkers, which can then be accessed by healthcare professionals from anywhere in the world. I imagine that's very important these days. So Marco is also a person who drives initiatives and projects to completion, always. Marco, take a moment and tell us a little bit about your life. Hey, thank you. Yeah, it's been a very colorful life, but um, I just have focus on Kipuwex, as that is our main product at the moment. But however, I'm a, a serial entrepreneur. So I started my career already in 1995. I work uh, in very big uh, mega companies for about 15 years almost 20. And then uh, 2015, I started as an entrepreneur. And I wanted to do something which is innovative and has a good uh, business opportunity, but I wanted to help people around the world. And therefore, I was very eager to find big problem that I can tackle. And then 2015, I didn't have a proper connection to hospital settings. So I always been very interested to something in healthcare. Then 2017, finally, I got a chance to do something in medical field. There was an innovation competition organized by Oulu University Hospital, which is one of the largest hospitals in Finland. And they listed the four or five major problems they actually see in their daily life in the hospital. And one of them was the pain management of the child. And that actually raised my interest that, okay, there's no solution available on the market which can actually detect and determine the pain of the child. And I then kind of started, started to think whether I can do something about it. Would it be possible to make a device which can automatically detect the pain of the child? And then I participated in this competition with the idea of Kipuwex. And then uh, basically it was a surprise that I won that competition. 
So this was basically a starting uh, hmm. point for Kipuwex, uh, and it was uh, basically summer 2017 when that happened. And uh, since that, uh, I have been focusing on uh, Kipuwex, which hopefully will uh, give a, a good uh, tool set, toolbox for, for those who are suffering from the chronic pain, and in addition to those people who don't have access to appropriate healthcare, especially people in developing countries. Mm. So there are something like 3.7 billion people still who do not have access to sufficient healthcare services. So this is what we want to tackle with the Kipuvex. I'm curious, what is it? I mean, when we think about pain, you know, we think I can feel pain. I know I have pain, but what are the markers that you have a higher level of pain? Is it something related to blood pressure? Is it something related to a series of factors or? Very, very good question. Obviously there's many indicators. Uh, pain itself is very difficult, difficult to quantify. But of course, like adults, they can actually give a score from zero to 10, that I have a pain six or seven. But what about babies, for instance, when they are not able to express themselves? So how to really find out whether a baby is uh, in pain? And I think uh, most of the people, audience, uh, knows that the baby will start crying when possibly have mm. pain. But it's not the only reason why baby is crying. They can actually cry several different reasons. But then there is a, let's say, combination of physiological behavior or, or factors, as well as behavioral factors that need to be taken into account. So what they do in the hospital, they actually look, uh, for instance, blood pressure, they look ETG, they look temperature, and then they actually observe the crying part, how baby is crying, or the movement of the baby. And all these different parameters, they have value. So let's say that seven, eight, nine parameters, they calculate that sum of the, these parameters equals to 17 points, and 17 points equal to seven in pain. So it's a really time-taking process. You need to actually observe uh, so many measurements uh, from so many different devices or, or mm. monitoring devices. And in addition to that, you need to monitor the behavioral factors from the baby. So it's a really time-taking and expensive procedure and it's also very subjective. So we wanted to actually obviously take as many parameters into account as possible and also analyze the behavioral factors automatically and continuously. So then it was quite challenging to first identify what parameters or biomarkers we want to integrate in the device. So in total, we have 11. And with the help of these 11 biomarkers or measurements, we can convert these measurements into reliable pain data with the help of AI. It's amazing. When you say, I'm, I'm very fascinated when you say reliable pain data, how reliable is it? Yeah, so at the moment, let, let me start that. Obviously, it's very challenging to make a very tiny device where we actually integrate all these biomarkers. <laughs> so that was a challenge itself that can we actually integrate all these biomarkers into tiny device. And okay, now we have been running the company three and a half years and we have managed to actually integrate all these uh, biomarkers into the device. And then we are now in the process of running through the clinical trials where we can see how reliably we actually can measure the pain. But based on the initial calculations and development and clinical trial work, 
we are confident that we can do it uh, uh, much more accurate than any of the existing methods. And I'm looking at your website and I look at the device and it kind of, to me, looks like something between the size of a, a, a mouse, maybe half the size of a mouse and the size of a watch, you know, of a big watch. How would you describe the size of this device? It is a small, let's say it's a smaller than a, than a matchbox, maybe half of it. Okay. Wow. And uh, yes, and it's very lightweighted. So you don't basically feel it uh, pretty much at all when you wear it on, on the chest. Now, mm. obviously, it has been designed such a way that uh, it's usable also for babies. It's not only for adults. You know, one last thing about it that's kind of interesting is, you know, I, I suffered from addiction when I was young and got addicted to drugs. And I managed to get off that and, you know, have been clean for a long time. But when I look back at America and what's happened with Oxycontin and all of the drugs that are out there, ultimately those drugs are for pain. But you do have a lot of people that are getting those drugs and in fact may not be in pain. They just may be in emotional pain, but they may not actually be in physical pain. And though your device is geared towards, you know, young people or kids and maybe people that can't vocalize it, it's also kind of interesting to be able to, I, I'd imagine a good doctor who has ethics may really not want to give this kind of really heavy, dangerous drugs to someone who's truly not experiencing a level of pain that they're expressing. They may be saying, I've got an extremely high level of pain, but it actually, it may be much more mild than they think about, but that's just what came into my mind. What do you think about that? Yeah, very good point that you raised. It's actually a fact that in the US, there's a lot of, let's say, discussion about the opioid crisis. As a matter of fact, more people are dying for opioids than in car crashes in the US. So it's a big problem, uh, what you actually described. Mm. And also now, uh, let's say, health society is looking alternative ways to treat the pain. That is not only kind of always giving the painkiller, but also alternative ways. And in addition to this uh, Kipovex device, we have also developed a separate application for those people who are suffering from the chronic pain. It's a self-assessment tool where you can actually mm. record all the pain events and share everything relevant to pain experience with your doctors and nurses. So this is a separate application which we have also developed because chronic pain is a global problem. Half of the uh, entire population is suffering from the chronic pain. And I'm sure in many of our listeners are right now because they're sitting in a chair, they're sitting at a desk all day long, and it definitely can cause back pain. I know that. Yeah. And it costs in the US only around 600 billion every year. It's a big mm. cost associated to pain. And, well, and still regarding the babies and being able to really understand the pain of the child. Other aspect is also when baby is in pain, that, you know, when giving the, some, in this case, probably painkiller, seeing that it really works. So with our devices, you can continuously measure that. Does it really help when giving mm -hmm. the painkiller? And typically now uh, doctors and nurses are so damn busy that the pain assessment is done only a couple of times per day. So it's not continuously kind of monitoring whether painkillers are working. It also, I guess, could hopefully mean minimum doses 
rather than a doctor saying, well, I don't know really what this pain is. So I'm going to pretty heavily medicate this, but yes. they may be over medicating just to be safe. Whereas with this type of a accuracy, it just means that the baby may have to take less medicine to get the relief that they need. Yes. Fascinating. And, and uh, what I didn't mention yet is that, um, you know, it's extremely important to be able to treat the baby in timely manner when the baby is in pain because the consequences are very fatal. It can cause lifelong trauma, disorder in development, meaning mental problems, or the pain may become chronic. Mm. So therefore, it's really important that the pain for the child is uh, treated in a timely manner. Well, I'd say that you've uh, lived up to your goal of wanting to do something good for the world. So congratulations on that. Thank you. And, and now, speaking of pain, now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one ever goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. Oh, my God. <laughs> yes. Yeah, as I uh, mentioned that I'm a serial entrepreneur. And what is a really problem when you are a startup, especially when you live in the north, almost middle of nowhere, the key thing is the funding, having money to run your business and finding investors and customers in Finland is not easy. And if you find the investors, now especially when we talk about medical devices, the development of medical devices is very expensive. So you need to be able to find, the, let's say, investors that are willing to give a little bit more than pocket money so that mm. you, can, you can really do a medical device, what you're supposed to do. So therefore, the only thing how, how you can really survive and do something is that you need to go abroad. You need to meet, meet people, find investors, find customers. The customers and investors are not coming to you. So I've been very active seeking investors and customers outside of Finland. I have not focused Finland at all. And so when we started the development Kipuvex, you know, first talking that it will be a pain assessment device. But then along the way, we realized that, okay, now we have integrated these 11 biomarkers into it. That, okay, maybe it's not any longer a pain assessment device. It's actually a patient monitoring device. Because the current, of basically, we do more measurements than most of the patient monitoring devices, these big boxes with wire and which are very mm. expensive. So then accidentally we were contacted uh, from Pakistan that they are very eager to have this kind of device simply because we do more than most of the devices and our solution is affordable. And obviously this is a minimum viable product that we can mm. go quicker into the market that we don't necessarily need to include uh, yet the pain part that we can launch the product first without the pain, just including the biomarkers. So I obviously was very eager to know more about the market in Pakistan. And then I decided that I will go there myself and experience that. Is there really a market and meeting people and possible investors and customers? And we did a lot of preparation work, you know, getting prepared that we are able to demonstrate everything for the hospitals. And then there was a one organization who wanted to become our partner doing sales and distribution on our behalf in, in Pakistan. So wanted to spend some time with that company. And when, you know, uh, going to Pakistan, you always bit courses that uh, what about safety? 
is it a bit too risky to go there? But uh, I'm a really a person who is willing to take risks. I'm not hesitant to do that. So uh, you know, we made the decision that let's go and experience um, how is the market in Pakistan. And we flew to Pakistan and then immediately on the, or at the airport, I started to realize that, well, people are watching and started to see people with guns almost everywhere. And I was like, oh boy, was this a really wise decision to come here? So putting my risk uh, in, in danger by going there. But hopefully this will turn something good at uh, risking my life and doing a lot of preparation. And then meeting first a possible partner. We spend many days going through our product and going through agreements and changing agreements and getting everything prepared. And they introduce us four or five different hospitals where we visited and we demonstrated the Kibovex solution. And they were very eager that they would like to purchase immediately. And I was, yes, this was really great to come here. And they actually placed kind of conditional orders that as soon as we have finalized the product, they will, they will order. I was, all right, this is awesome. There's a good uh, business opportunity in Pakistan. But then when we spent more time, almost one week with the possible partner, we got all the paperwork done, everything ready. They want to immediately purchase some amount of devices or good amount of devices, which we agreed to sell them and we delivered them. And they said they will do the payment immediately. And, you know, when you have spent one week with a company there, we build a relationship and we start trusting each other. And even though we got the warning that you always should actually try to get the upfront payment in those kind of places. Mm. But when you have spent one week with them, you have really managed to have a relationship. So I trusted we actually kind of left big amount of devices there and a lot of other stuff, uh, kind of accessories, etc. And they promised to do the payment the next day. And I haven't got the payment still today. So we was big amount of money, almost entire, let's say, stock of our devices. <laughs> Hoping that, okay, now we can demonstrate we have a first customer. We have a, started to get the traction for the company. We have started to get the revenue. But we never got, got the money. We never got the money. So that was... Um, and what did they say? Basically, they said that it's, not, it's a problem in our bank, that we should actually contact our bank. And of course, we contact our bank that uh, why the money has not arrived. And they said, no, no, they have nothing to do. It's actually the mm. problem in the Pakistan. And, uh, and then from Pakistan, they actually tried to sell some documents that they have done the transfer. But it never happened uh, properly, uh, actually. So in a way, we were cheated and betrayed. Mm. And what do you think they did with the devices? Yeah, so uh, there's two possibilities that they may have actually sold them uh, themselves, or they have opened and started to look at what is inside and trying to copy what we have done. Either of these two. We never managed to get any, any, uh, any money. When was that trip, roughly? It was just uh, before the COVID-19. Uh, it was uh, one, one year ago. One year ago, okay. January yeah. 2020. Back when we could travel. 
<laughs> so, yeah. so let me ask you, can you summarize the lessons that you learned from this experience? Yeah, so I, I think the two things are what we got to learn from this. You know, one is that uh, obviously you, you need to be confident to go out of your comfort zone, especially now we took a big risk uh, putting our own life uh, in danger going to Pakistan. It's not a very safe country, to be honest. So this was uh, something that I wanted to experience and really got indication that there is a market, there is a need by meeting those uh, five hospitals, uh, two of them already placed orders, that the market is there. Mm. But then we trusted the kind of local partner there, that we can actually start delivering through that partner and building the relationship. And that was uh, basically the weak part of the, uh, this equation, that the partner betrayed us. Mm. So now probably I'm not going to do the same, that trusting our local partner, just uh, talking to, let's say, one week with them, so I rather would like to use a uh, more reliable partner, uh, well-known partners, global distributors. Hmm. So maybe I'll share a couple of things that I take away from the story. After listening to many stories of loss, I've reduced the mistakes down to six common mistakes. And mistake number four is called misplaced trust. And it's a very common one. And I think that one of the things that I always tell young people, for instance, in business is that when we go to business school, we learn about law, we learn about management, we learn about accounting, we learn about marketing, but we don't really learn about trust. And trust is really the glue that keeps business together. And you don't think about it, but you know, you've got accounts receivable, you've got accounts payable, you've got employees that are working and they're trusting that you're going to pay them at the end of this month. And trust is everywhere in business. And if that trust breaks down, business breaks down. And yeah. so I think it's a great, you know, the big takeaway for me of your story is to, to remind us all that building trust is an important part of business. And that it's not to say that we don't trust people. It's just that in the beginning, it may be that we deal in cash until we build a trusting relationship and that type of thing, you know, and we, we have a much tougher requirement until there's some history. And I think the second thing I would say about trust is that there's no shortcut to trust, that it must come over time because you've got to see how that person performs over time or that relationship performs over time. Those are the things that I take away. Anything you would add to that? Yeah, um, I'm from Finland and Finland is uh, always seen as maybe one of the most trustful country people uh, they are very open and honest. And this is uh, how I've been basically growing up, that I trust what people are saying. And maybe this was also a kind of mistake from our side, that I was a too, uh, let's say, blue-eye person, believing that, um, you know, I haven't managed to build a good relationship and trust after one week, as uh, that would uh, be the case in Finland. So mm. in Finland, in this area where I'm living, actually, verbal agreements, Weber contracts are still applicable. Yep. So you don't need to even have a, a written agreement. If you have made a verbal agreement, that is still applicable in, in the court itself. So, <laughs> yep. so this is also lessons learned that, uh, well, people are not necessarily similar in other countries. And I'm going to ask you the next question. But before I ask you that question, you know, I, I think that from my experience living in Asia now 30 years, 
it's very common for, let's say, as a Westerner to go to a country and they take care of you very well and they're very nice and they introduce you to people. And it's really hard to be able to see through if somebody's doing that in a sneaky way or a tricky way or whether they're doing that with sincerity. So this is what makes the next question really hard because I want to think about uh, let's just take a young man or woman from Finland or other country where they have a, a pretty legal structure or legal relationships that are very clear and they want to expand. They need to expand to other countries. So I'm going to ask you this question based upon what you have learned from this story and what you continue to learn, what one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate? Obviously it is a, you know, to be successful as an entrepreneur, you need to challenge the current status quo and go out of your comfort zone, but don't be too, let's say, open-minded. You need to actually follow some guidelines that has been, which you have got probably from your advisors mm. and elsewhere using the experience that how other people have done that. So I should have probably done a little bit more homework that how other companies have managed to, let's say, enter the Pakistan market and not just uh, going there blindly. So uh, probably consulting some other companies that uh, mm. what is the best possible way to tackle that market and not just uh, believing my own instinct. That's good advice. Try to find someone that's gone before. I think about one story in relation to my coffee business where my best friend Dale runs the company for 25 years. And in the beginning, it was a bit of a mess. You know, accounting was a mess. And there was just so many things that you couldn't just, you couldn't keep the business working, operating super efficiently because you were trying to grow. But we got a great accountant and she's been really great. She's been with us for years. But somebody, we were out at an event talking about starting up companies and somebody said, you know, what advice would you give? And he said, the first thing I would do if I started a company today is I would hire an accountant to sit right next to me and help me to manage all the flow of cash and all that. But also to have, I'm thinking about like in your case, to have the policy so that when they say, oh yeah, yeah, we want to get this and that. Oh, here's the policy from the accounting department. So it's not you saying something, you know, it's just that I have to follow the policy. And that's what Dale had said about the idea of, you know, really using the accountant for that type of purpose. Yeah. And what we did uh, basically after that, uh, obviously, what is very important also for startup companies that they have very strong advisory board. And since uh, this experience, we have actually improved or enhanced the uh, advisory board. So uh, before that, we had uh, more kind of medical advisors, mm. but not necessarily so much uh, business uh, advisors. And that is how what we have now covered also, that we have a real business advisors in our advisor board. Well, today you are being a business advisor to all the listeners out there. So <laughs> I appreciate that. Last question. What's your number one goal for the next 12 months? Now we are uh, focusing our next round of investment, uh, which we need to secure so that we can now uh, basically go to market and delivering uh, products to our customers uh, around the world. So. Uh, starting the production, that is where we need the money. Exciting. Well, for the listeners out there, you want to uh, contribute some cash to this very noble opportunity, just go to the show notes and click on the link and you can get straight to Marco. All right, listeners, 
that you have in another story of loss to keep you winning. Reduce your risk in your life by going to myworstinvestmentever.com and download the risk reduction checklist. As we conclude, Marco, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. And on behalf of ASTOTS Academy, I hereby award you alumni status for turning your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience? I'm very grateful for this opportunity. So hopefully audience uh, got uh, some uh, hints and tips from this. So don't replicate my mistakes. <laughs> Let's replicate your success. Fantastic. Well, that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our well fellow risk takers. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott, saying, I'll see you on the upside.